But we're in Philippians chapter 1. Rejoicing in relationships. Our world does not understand the difference between happiness and joy. As I said a few weeks ago, happiness is something that is dependent upon our circumstances. While joy is something that comes as a gift from God. What is joy? Joy is a state of delight and well-being that results from knowing and from serving God. But sadly, there are a lot of Christians who are sitting in pews or chairs week after week who don't have joy. They lack joy in their life. They want joy. They desire joy in their life. But they take advice from the world and they look for joy the same way that the world looks for happiness. They look for joy in their circumstances. And many try to find joy in material consumption. In material things. They think that if they have more stuff, new stuff, or something that someone else has, then that's going to bring them joy. And because they're not content with where God has them and what God has for them in their life, they lose out on experiencing joy in their life. Because they're trying to find it in the wrong places. The Apostle Paul was a great model of a man who lived a joy-filled life. He lived a joy-filled life that was not dependent upon the circumstances in his life. Because his joy was not found in material consumption or the circumstances that God had him in in his life. That's not where he found his joy. Where did the Apostle Paul find his joy? He found his joy in relationships. His joy was in relationships. First, in his relationship with God. And second, in his relationship with people. That's where he found his joy. In fact, the material things in life were such a non-factor to him that he says this in Philippians 4.10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. You have concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And then he goes on in verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Whatever circumstance Paul was in, in life, it didn't affect his joy. He knew the power of contentment in life. He understood how to control his emotions and bring them in check so that he could be joyful in whatever circumstance God had him in. And think about what Paul is going through as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. Where is Paul? In Rome. In prison. Not good circumstances in his life. But it didn't affect his joy. Paul had joy in in Philippians 4.10 because of the relationship that he knew that he had with the Philippian believers. Not because they had supplied him with a financial gift, although they did do that. But that gift was just the proof of their love for him and their concern for him. And it was that, that relationship then that he had with them that brought him great joy. Not the material gift. And I believe that if Christians learn to understand how important the relationships are that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, and learn to focus on those relationships, then there would be more joy-filled churches. The past few years, we got a taste of this. As churches shut their doors and began to live stream 
their services. What did these churches tell their people? Well, they told them many things by shutting their doors. But one thing that they were communicating to their congregations was that relationships with fellow brothers and sisters are not that important. You can just sit at home and watch on TV. You can just sit at home and watch on the computer. Isolated. And what happened to those people who were isolated? They suffered because of it. They suffered because they lacked relationship. They sat at home and lacked relationships with other believers. And they lost out on the joy that they could have had if they had been together serving one another, praying for one another, loving one another, being like-minded with one another. And doing the things that God tells us to do in His Word, in relationship to one another. Think about all of the one another's that are there in Scripture. There's a lot of them, right? What's implied in one another? Relationship. Relationship. Being with one another. Being together. And Paul understood the importance of relationships. He understood how relationships bring joy to believers. And it's reflected in his prayer in verses 3-11. through 11. And specifically this morning, we're going to see how he, he prays with joy because of his relationship that he has with the church at Philippi. Now you might be thinking, well, Paul's not with these believers. I mean, he's, he's 800 miles away in Rome, in prison. So how could Paul then have a relationship with them? Well, we know that Paul visited the church at least once after he founded the church in Acts 16. But he also knew that the Philippian believers did not forget about him. And in return, he did not forget about them. They continued the relationship that they had. They had sent him gifts throughout his ministry, showing their concern for Paul and showing how important it was to continue in relationship with him. Now obviously, Paul had a different kind of ministry, right? Paul had a different kind of ministry than most pastors do, than most people do. As a traveling preacher, going from town to town and establishing churches and encouraging churches, he had a different life than what you and I have in the local church. And yet he still understood the importance of relationships with fellow believers. And even though he had a different ministry than what you and I have, even though he had different relationships than what you and I have within the context of the local church, that didn't stop his relationship with the believers in Philippi. They were near and dear to his heart, as we're going to see. And every time he thought about his relationship with them, every time he remembered these Philippian believers, it brought him great joy. And what was it specifically that kept this joyful relationship going? It was their partnership in the gospel. We saw that last week, right? The partnership that they had in the gospel. He knew that they were fellow partners in the gospel with him. They had one mission. They had one goal, one purpose. To live for Christ and to spread the gospel so that others might come to know Christ as well. Now, as we've been working our way through Philippians 1, we saw in verses 1 and 2, Paul's introduction. And now we've been working our way through verses 3 through 11. In verses 3 through 8, it is his prayer of thanksgiving as he joyfully thanks God for them. It's a prayer that is filled with joy. And then in verses 9 through 11, it's his prayer of spiritual concern for them. But this morning we're focused on the first part of this prayer. This joyful prayer that Paul has for the Philippian believers. He's thankful for them and he's filled with joy. 
because of his relationship with them. In fact, look at verse 3 and how he gives thanks for them. He says in verse 3 there, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. This was a thankful prayer. It was a joyful prayer that Paul had as he thought about the Philippian church and the relationship that he had with them. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first part of this joyful prayer for them in verses 6 through 8. And specifically there in verse 6, as Paul prayed for this church and thought about his relationship with them. And as he thought about this relationship that he had with the Philippian believers, it brought him great joy. And so let me read our passage for us, beginning in verse 6. Follow along as I read verses 6 through 8. Paul says this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now as we work our way through these three verses, we're going to see Paul's relationship with the believers in Philippi. And we're going to learn how our relationships can bring us joy as well. And so we're going to see three types of relationships that bring us joy. Three types of relationships that bring us joy. First, the first point here this morning is the joy of spiritual relationships. The joy of spiritual relationships. Look again at verse 6. Paul says this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. As Paul prayed for these believers, it brought him great joy. Not only thinking about what God had done in their lives, but also what God was going to do in their lives. You see, as, as believers in Christ, there is something special that we have together. We have something special in our relationships with each other that we don't have with unbelievers. We all worship the same God, right? We worship Christ. We all have saving faith in Christ. We know that we are saved because of what Christ has done for us. And there's a special bond that we have because of this faith that you and I have in Christ. A special bond that we don't have with unbelievers. We think differently than they do. We speak differently than they do. And we live differently than they do. But there's something that's special about this relationship that we have with each other that we can't find in any other relationship that we have with unbelievers. Whether it's a relationship with our own blood relatives, or with friends, or with acquaintances. We have a different type of relationship because we have spiritual relationship. We have a spiritual relationship. It's the relationship that we have with each other as believers that unifies us and brings us together as fellow partners in the gospel. In fact, as we saw last week, we saw that we have koinonia, fellowship, Fellowship in the gospel in verse 5. We have koinonia. We have fellowship with each other that we will never ever have with unbelievers. Never. One commentator says, those who belong to this koinonia enjoy a friendship deeper than the blood relationship of brothers and sisters on the basis of their mutual participation in the saving work of Christ announced by the gospel. A deeper relationship, a friendship that is deeper than even blood relationships. 
that we have together because of the unity that we have in Christ, as believers in Christ. And that's the close relationship that Paul had with the Philippians. As fellow believers, they were fellow participants with him in the gospel. And for Paul, it brought him great joy because he had confidence that these relationships would stand the test of time. You see, Paul knew that nothing was going to affect the relationship that he had with his brothers and sisters in Christ. That the spiritual relationships that he had with brothers and sisters in Christ, they were going to stand the test of time. He had confidence in that. In fact, look at what he says at the beginning of verse 6. He says, for I am confident of this very thing. Paul was joyful because of the, the partnership that he and the Philippian believers had in the gospel. But he was also joyful because of the confidence that he had in the powerful work of God in the life of the believers at Philippi. One commentator says his joyful thanksgiving for their partnership in the gospel is based upon his conviction that this partnership is the work of God. It's the work of God in the life of the believers. Not the work of Paul in their life. It's the work of God that God has done in the lives of the believers there at Philippi. And he knows that there's a special fellowship that he has with them. A special relationship that he has because of the work that God has done in their life. You see, you and I here this morning, we have a special relationship. Not because of anything that you and I have done, but because of what God has done in us. Our fellowship, our partnership that we have with each other is not based upon some kind of work that you and I have done. But it's based upon the work that was done to us. None of us here this morning as believers are here because of what we have done. None of us. We're not here because of what we have done. In fact, if we were to look around, we would have to agree that many of us don't have a whole lot in common as far as hobbies and interests go. I mean, you think about this. If we were here joining some kind of club because of common interests and common hobbies that we have, we wouldn't be gathered here this morning. We have different likes. Different interests. And that's okay. But why are we here on a Sunday morning gathered together? Not because of our common hobbies that we have, but because of our common faith that we have, right? It's because of that relationship that we have with Christ. Because of what He has done in our lives. It's our faith, our common faith in Christ and the work that He has done in us that brings us together. That gives us these relationships that we have. And Paul knew that. He knew that that was the basis for his relationship with the Philippian believers. And he had confidence that this relationship was going to last. How do we know? Look at what he says as he continues in verse 6. He says that he is confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Notice who began the good work. He did. Who's the he there? God is. God is the one who began this good work. He is the one who did the work in our hearts to save us. He is the one who does the work to sanctify us. And he will do the work in our lives to make sure that our salvation comes to completion. To perfection. God will make sure that that happens in our lives. Now, let me just pause right here. Because there's a lot that's packed into this verse that we need to unpack. There's a lot in here. Notice there, in verse 6, that there's a, a past action and a future result. 
There's a past action and a future result. That he began a good work. Past action. And there's a future result. And will perfect it. He will perfect it. As we've studied sanctification in the past, we've talked about the three components of sanctification. Past, present, and future. That there's a past reality, a present reality, and a future reality in sanctification. But when we talk about sanctification, what are we talking about? When we use this word sanctification, what are we talking about? Well, to sanctify simply means to set apart. To set apart or to make holy. It means to set something apart for special use. And the first component of sanctification is what we call positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. Something that's happened in the past. This is the moment of our initial salvation that's happened to us in the past. The moment when God saved us. Positional sanctification. That He set us apart. He made us holy. We are now saints because of what God has done in our lives. Notice what Paul says there, that God began a good work. God began it. In the Greek, this is an aorist middle participle, meaning this. That God is the one who acted out of His own volitional choice. God acted out of His own volitional choice. He saved us. He began this good work in us by His own choice. God did it. It was His personal initiative to set this work in motion, to save us, to redeem us, to call us, to set us apart as holy. God is the one who chose to do this. God is the one who did that work in our lives. And no one coerced God into doing this. No one forced God into doing this. This is an action that God has done on His own, by His own choice. This is something that He chose to set in motion in you. He chose to save you, and He chose at that moment to set that in motion inside of you. He chose to save you in eternity past, and He then caused you to be born again so that you could repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is positional sanctification. This is the work of God in salvation. And it's a work of God that must happen in us. It must happen to us. Because without God's work in our hearts to regenerate us, none of us would come to Christ, right? Romans chapter 3 is very clear. No one seeks after God. No, not one. Without God's initial work in our hearts to regenerate us, to cause us to be born again, no one would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. God has to first do that work in our lives to cause our dead hearts to be born again, to be made alive, so that we will then respond in repentance and faith. Because none of us would come to Christ on our own. Why would we not come to Christ on our own? Because Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Nothing. Not a single thing can a dead person do. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Therefore, God had to do a work in our hearts to make our dead heart alive. He is the one who initiated it. He's the one who chose us. He is the one who started that work in our hearts. God does this work in our hearts to regenerate us. And how does He do it? Through the message of the gospel. We heard the message of the gospel that you must repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. We heard that message of the gospel and God regenerated our hearts and then we responded to that message by repenting and putting our faith in Christ. 
God does it through the gospel. And that's why it's so important for Paul to realize and recognize with the Philippian believers that they are fellow participants in the gospel. Because he realizes that it is the gospel then that is going to change lives. That God works through the message of the gospel. And when God then does that work in our hearts, we can then respond to Him in repentance and faith. And when God does that work in us, He sanctifies us. He saves us. He sets us apart as saints, as His children. And He grants us the free gift of salvation. He sets us apart as holy saints to be His. We are His. We belong to Him. And as believers who are here this morning, sitting here this morning, God has done that work in each one of our lives, right? God has done that work. And as sanctified believers, there is then a common bond, a special relationship a spiritual relationship that we have with each other as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who have all had God's work done in our hearts. Do you realize that? Church, do you realize that? That your brother or sister who is sitting next to you, God has done a special work in their life. And He's done a special work in your life as well. That's positional sanctification. The second component of sanctification is what we call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. That is, the work that God started in our lives, He will continue to do. Notice what He says there in verse 6, until the day of Christ Jesus. That means that we will continue to grow in Christ-likeness in our lives. We put off the sins that we were once enslaved to. We put off, and then we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we grow in Him, and we grow to become more like Him. That's progressive sanctification. You see, at the moment of our salvation, we don't receive the final glorification and the completion of our salvation. No one sitting here this morning is glorified, right? None of us are glorified. But God has willed it so that we still live in this body of flesh even though we have been redeemed spiritually. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus, but we struggle with our fallen flesh. Romans chapter 7, right? Isn't that what Paul said? That's the battle that he has. The daily struggle. Battling this flesh that he has. And that's why he says, I can't wait to be glorified. It's the struggle. But as those who are a new creation in Christ, we are being sanctified day by day as the Lord does His work in our lives to bring us to Christ, to become more like Christ. Progressive sanctification. And this is going to happen until we die. Until we die, we should be seeing sanctification in our lives that God does. And how does He do it? Through His what? Through His Word. He does it through His Word. That's why it's so important to be in the Word, to know the Word, to grow in your knowledge of Christ through the Word. As we get into the Word and we study the Word and we come to know God more through His Word, then we are becoming more and more like Christ. We're being transformed. We have the mind of Christ. Where is the mind of Christ found? Right here in the pages of Scriptures. As we grow to become more and more like our Savior. Progressive sanctification. And this will happen until the final component of our sanctification, which we call perfective sanctification. Not only is there positional sanctification and 
progressive sanctification, but also perfective sanctification. And this is what Paul is talking about here in verse 6. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it. He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, God began the good work and He will complete it. He will perfect it in us. God saved us at a, a moment in time in history and He will make sure then that our salvation is complete on that final day. This is also what we call perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints or eternal security of the believer. That is that we cannot lose our salvation. Because our salvation is not based upon us and our works. It's based upon who? God and His work that He's done in us. God will not fail us. He will never fail us. He will see us all the way to the end. Charles Spurgeon was once asked whether he believes in the perseverance of the saints. To which he responded, well, I do not know much about that, but I firmly believe in the final perseverance of God. That where He has begun a good work, He will carry it on until it is complete. You see, what He's doing there is He's saying perseverance of the saints is not dependent upon the saints. Perseverance of the saints is dependent upon God. That's why He calls it, I, I know about the perseverance of God. The final perseverance that what God started in our lives, God is going to complete. That's what Paul says there in verse 6. He began a good work in you. God did this work and God will not stop doing something that He has started. Now you and I do this at times, right? We start a project and we don't finish it. Some of you might have a project in your garage right now. That is not complete. Or a scrapbook in your closet that you were going to do for all of your kids that's tucked away collecting dust. Not complete. It's not finished. We all do that with projects. We start them and then we don't finish them. But it's not that way with God. It's not that way with Him. What God begins, God finishes. What God starts, God will complete. And when will this completion be? Well, hold your finger in Philippians chapter 1 and turn over with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we see this glorious chain of salvation that Paul gives for us. And what God does in salvation. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Notice this in verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. You see that what the goal is? What's the goal? To be conformed to the image of His Son. Sanctification. Conformed to the image of His Son so that, we, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Look at verse 30. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also what? Glorified. He glorified. But you might be thinking, well, I'm not glorified yet. That's right. You're not. None of us are. None of us are glorified. But notice the confidence that Paul has that what God started, he is going to complete. 
Paul has confidence and he knows that this glorification is a done deal. And that's why he says, whom he justified, he has also glorified. He understands and knows that glorification is a future reality, but he says, but it's a done deal. That what God did in your life to justify you, he's going to complete. And therefore, you're glorified, even though you're not yet glorified. But it's a done deal for us. God is going to complete this work. Paul has this confidence And he knows that this glorification is a done deal. Why? Because he knows that God is the one who is going to complete our salvation. It's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon God. Those whom God foreknew, he also glorified. Those whom God foreknew in eternity past, he has also glorified. It's done. It's complete. God will complete the good work that He has started in us. And when will this completion be? When we're glorified. As one commentator says, God both initiates and consummates our salvation. God both initiates and consummates our salvation. It's all dependent upon Him. He started it and He will complete it. Turn back to Philippians chapter 1 and look at verse 6 again. And notice what Paul says that God will do. He says that God will perfect it. God will perfect it. That word perfect in the Greek is a compound word. Epiteleo. Epi meaning on or upon and teleo meaning to bring to an end, to complete or to finish. It means to accomplish, perfect, execute, or complete. And it has the idea here of fully finishing something. That is, God will fully finish what He has started in you. And this brings Paul great joy, knowing that what God started in the lives of the believers in Philippi, He is going to perfect it. He is going to complete it. But when is this going to happen? Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 6. Notice this phrase here. He says, until the day of Christ Jesus. Until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, most of us would know from reading the Old Testament that there's a future time known as the day of the Lord. Right? Read about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. But notice Paul doesn't say here the day of the Lord. What does he say? The day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus. When we read about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, like in Joel 2.11, it says this, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Or Isaiah 13.6, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's the day of judgment or the day of God's wrath, as Revelation 6 calls it. It's the day of God's wrath. But notice what Paul does here. What does he say? He doesn't say until the day of the Lord, but he says until the day of what? Of Christ Jesus. For us believers, Paul understands and he knows that we will not endure judgment or the wrath of God. That's not our future. There is no judgment in our future. There is no wrath from God in our future. Because Christ took God's wrath upon Himself that was due to us as He hung there on that cross. He took God's wrath for us. He took God's judgment for us. 
as he hung there on that cross so that we would never have to endure God's wrath. Never. And that means that our future will not see the day of the Lord, but we will see the day of Christ Jesus. What is that day? That day that Paul is talking about here is referring to the second coming of Christ. When Christ returns. And it begins when Christ comes to rapture His church and raise the dead saints. And give us all glorified bodies. Titus 2.13 says this, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's our blessed hope. What is our hope? Our hope is Christ and His appearing that He is going to come back again. It's a blessed day for us. It's a day to rejoice. It's a day that you and I today can rejoice knowing that our future is, to, is going to be with Christ when He returns to take us to be with Him. We can rejoice in that. And so when we see all the things that are going on in our world today, we can rejoice that our future is not in this world, but our future is with Christ, glorified with Him. He is going to return, and we will be with Him. What's going to happen on that day when Christ returns? 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that the dead in Christ are going to rise first and then those who are alive will be caught up together with Him to meet Christ in the air. 1 Corinthians 15.51 says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will all be changed. For this imperishable, uh, this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. That's our future, church. Do you realize that? We can rejoice in that. Knowing that that is our future. Our future is glorification. A resurrected body. Perfected. Because of what God started in us. That's the completion of our salvation. Where you and I will be given a glorified body. Paul speaks of this day again down in verse 10 in Philippians chapter 1. Notice what he says there. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And then looking forward to that day when we will be glorified in chapter 2 and verse 16, he says this, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I will have reason to rejoice because I know that the work that I did in spreading the gospel to you Philippian believers, God then did His work in you and God completed His work and we will stand there together rejoicing. This day, the day of Christ, the day of Christ Jesus is not a day of judgment or wrath. But this is a day that you and I as believers are to be longing for. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1.7 says, So that you are not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will stand before God blameless, redeemed, complete, glorified because of what Christ has done in us. And we eagerly await that day, right? Because that's the day when we will be glorified. When our salvation will be perfected. When it will be complete. And the thought of this day brings Paul great joy. Because he knows that these Philippian believers whom He dearly loves, will be there with Him on that day. You see, if 
If you look around, it is these relationships that we have with each other that should bring us great joy. These spiritual relationships that we have with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's these relationships that we have with each other that should cause our heart to rejoice. Because these are the ones in whom God has done a work in. Which means these are the people that you're going to be spending eternity with. We're going to be spending eternity with one another. That's joyful. That's a joyous thought. To think that we will be with each other forever. For all of eternity. Listen, church, it's easy to become discouraged when we focus on the vain things of this world. And we can easily become discouraged when we focus on the problems and the imperfections of other believers. Thinking about all the, the negative things about another believer is a killjoy, right? And it will cause us to lose our joy that we should have because of the spiritual relationship that we have with one another. Look, are any of us perfect? No. At least not yet. We're not perfect. And listen, Paul knew that the Philippian church was not perfect. He knew that there was some disagreements there in the church. There was some fighting that was going on. He knew that they weren't perfect. But he didn't let those imperfections steal his joy. And we shouldn't let the imperfections in other believers' lives steal our joy away from us either. As we look around at each other, it should bring our heart great joy knowing that what God has begun in our hearts will be brought to completion when Christ returns. We will be standing together with Christ in glorified bodies rejoicing at the work that God began in us and then has completed in us. As Paul thought about his relationship with the Philippian believers, it brought him great joy knowing that these relationships were not short-term. There wasn't an expiration date on his relationship with these Philippian believers. In fact, he knew that these relationships would still be thriving on the day of Christ Jesus. as they would all be standing there together in glorified bodies. And when we think about our relationships with each other as fellow brothers and sisters, it should bring us great joy. Listen, if you ever lack joy in your life, just begin to start praying for a fellow believer and thanking God for all that He has done in their life and all that God will continue to do in their life. Try it sometime. When you lack joy, just begin praying for a fellow brother or sister in Christ and thanking God for them and thanking God for the work that He started in their life and all the work that He is going to continue to do in their life. And watch and see how your heart will begin to rejoice. Knowing that God is working in your fellow brother or sister's life. Paul knew that God had done this in the Philippians' life. And he knew that God was not done with them. And, and it brought him great joy as he thought about the spiritual relationship that he had with these Philippian believers. 
as they were on the same team. They were fellow participants with him in the gospel, and it brought him great joy. And it should bring us great joy as well. Well, there are two more types of relationships that bring us joy. The joy of unified relationships and the joy of affectionate relationships, but we'll save those for next week. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for the work that you have begun in our lives. Father, we know that salvation is not dependent upon us. Yes, you do call us to repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. But we know that that can only happen by you first regenerating our hearts and causing us to be born again so that we can then respond with the gift of repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. Father, there's nothing that we have done to save ourselves but you have done the work in our hearts. And we thank you and we rejoice at what you have begun in us. And Father, we know that you will complete it in the end. And there is great joy in that. Knowing that what you have begun in our lives, you will perfect it on the day of Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who does not have this spiritual relationship with your children because they're an unbeliever, because they have not repented of their sin and put their faith in you. Father, I pray that you would open their hearts to respond to this good news. The good news that you came to seek and to save that which was lost. To respond to the good news that even though our sin has separated us from You, that You sent Your one and only Son to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to be buried and to be raised again on the third day and to make the payment for us, for our sin that we couldn't make. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know You, that does not know Your saving work in their lives, Father, I pray that You would save them. That You would open their hearts to respond in repentance and faith. Father, I pray that as brothers and sisters in Christ that we would continue to rejoice with each other Rejoicing in one another's lives and the work that you began and the work that you continue to do as you sanctify us. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here this morning. I thank you for the work that you have done and that you continue to do. And I rejoice as I see the work that you continue to do through your word. May you be glorified through all of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.